0: morena fana advent this is by far and away no matter whether you're a kid or an adult should be the most exciting time of the year right you know the fans are out it's hot <laughs> right so finally in like Wellington we're getting what they call warm weather <laughs> Woo! Um, and my figs are growing which is amazing apparently because apparently it's too early for them growing but I'm proving everybody wrong I've done absolutely nothing about it, but hey. Um, So Advent is here, and it's interesting, when it comes to Christmas for us, it's almost like this kind of bubble that kind of drops into the real world where we can hop into it for a little bit and then hop back out, right? This cool story, um, this sterilized story of this uh, young couple and this little baby in a manger, and the joy of Christmas and all. And then the 26th, we're out shopping because that's when the specials are on, right? But what we do with that story is we don't actually drop it in the real world. it it kind of exists outside of it. It's like this pause. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere, it's even a bigger pause because you don't have summer holidays. It literally is right in the middle of the year. So it becomes this momentary pause rather than just taking in the importance of how this story impacts our everyday life today. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, "'That's the trouble with how we've treated Christmas "'these many years. "'We've screened out the emperor, "'and so we've missed out the point of the angels. "'The Christmas story, like Isaiah's prophecy, "'isn't about an escape from the real politics and economics "'of empires and taxes and bloodthirsty wars.' It's about God addressing these problems at last, from within, coming into our world, his world, and shouldering the burden of authority, coming to deal with the problems of evil, of chaos, and violence, and oppression in all their horrible forms. And only when we look hard at those promises and come to grips with what they really mean are we able to grasp the real comfort and joy that Christmas does truly provide Otherwise, we are purchasing a false private comfort at an inflated cost of allowing the rest of the world to continue in its misery. It's a very powerful paragraph there by N.T. Wright. And that's unfortunately what we've done, not consciously, but we've kind of treated like Christmas like this bubble. And some of the things I've heard say before is like, well, you know, we're in the real world now. It's very different from back then. You know, we've got a lot of stresses today. We've got a lot of issues going on. But some of us don't realize how stressful, how intense, and how very much like today, the time Jesus was born was like. Now, if you've been here for a number of uh, months or years, you will know that I like to dig into the history of stuff. I'm not going to repeat some of the things I've done before, especially along the lines of the the Jews and what they've gone through. But I do want to just stop a moment and give you an idea of what that period was like. They call it the intertestamental period. It's a period from about 420 BC when Malachi was written to to about the appearance of John the Baptist. Um, And and it was a really tumultuous period. Alexander the Great appears, conquers most of the world at that point, or the known world in that region, converts the whole region to Greek. Greek. And it's amazing the changes. Then this other massive empire you know, is brewing. The Romans are coming. The Carthaginians who were down south was another very strong empire that was then destroyed by the Romans. There's a lot going on. But for the Jews in particular, there were some major upheavals in their own society. They um, had to deal with a, a mass exodus of their own people. Since the Babylonians had come in and taken their land and brought them into exile their people just kind of slowly started spreading out around the Mediterranean. At about 200 BC, they they get to Rome, and they actually form quite a, a visible and, and a presence in Rome. And they were pretty well respected by the Romans themselves. They called it the Jewish diaspora. The, they, they just kind of went out everywhere. And in fact, at a certain period, there would be more Jews outside of, you know... Uh, Jerusalem and the Holy Land than there were in, you know elsewhere, it was amazing what was happening there, and that also brought on some other changes. the first synagogues. all of a sudden, you can go to your own local mini temple kind of thing wasn 't a temple that would have been heretical, but the scriptures were held there, and they can go and listen to a rabbi teach in a building, and in Rome, there were several synagogues, but they were all over. The Mediterranean, and all of a sudden, these little places are starting to pop up everywhere. It never happened before. This was the first time. Also, what was impactful was that the Hebrew language was beginning to be uh, become uh, less spoken, and Greek, even amongst the Jews, was becoming their primary language. It was in this point that the uh, the Septuagint was written, which is a collection of um, uh, of the Old Testament, basically in in ancient Greek because they were noticing their young kids weren't growing up with the traditions of us, you know and they were learning this kind of horrible Greek language and we're getting all put out of shape because it should be Hebrew, we're Jews why are we speaking this Greek stuff but of course the young people went because they changed society and sooner or later everyone's speaking Greek big, big changes the um Other changes that we had was the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, The the Jews since Babylon, which is about 580 BC, were under the yoke oppression of another nation. They weren't independent. And at about 166 BC, the Maccabean Revolt occurred. They rebelled against the Greek overlords, and they won what was basically a guerrilla warfare. They were vastly outnumbered, but they won. And for the first time in almost 400 years, they were their own independent, run state, their own country. They had their own kings, their own leaders. It was amazing. They, were "So oh, yeah. this is a whole new period for them, right? Then of course, uh, the Romans come along, which actually is thanks to the Jews that the Romans come along. But the Romans weren't just an oppressive empire. The Romans to the ancient world, the impact they had on the people there, think about it this way, it's like the internet and how it's impacted us today. Now, most of you don't remember this. Um, Actually, maybe most of us do. Uh, We didn't grow up with the internet, right? When I was dating Monica, I had to write her a letter. And the thing is, I was living in Rome at the time, and to write a letter through Italian post was kind of dodgy because the Italians, you know, they're kind of blase about things. Oh, here's a letter. We'll, We'll see when that gets there, right? So I used to get on my moped and go to the Vatican because the Vatican had their own postal system and I could be assured that Monica would get her letter within a week. You imagine sending a text today and have to wait a week before it gets to the other person. And then I would wait patiently because it'd take a week for her to get it and then it would take her sometimes a little more than a week uh, to get back to me. Um, and, and so it would be like two weeks where you kind of think... Because you couldn't afford to make a phone call. My first month, uh, uh, I was in Rome, Monica was in the States. The first month, I just kept call- calling her every day. We had a $1,100 phone bill in 1992, <laughs> which is like $20,000 today. <laughs> so my mother made sure I wasn't using her phone. And uh, technology back then, you know what the greatest thing was? Having an extension cord for the phone. <laughs> I was like, where's the phone? Who's taking it? Follow the lead. <laughs> yeah. The Romans, what they did is they just changed everything. Romans were exceptionally efficient. They wanted their message to get across to everyone promptly. So they built roads. They put governors in certain areas. They made sure they had runners everywhere. So all of a sudden, what news would take months to get to you was getting to you in weeks. Now, I know today we think weeks, that's still like months, isn't it? Back then it wasn't. And that created action, a lot of efficiency and, and great stuff, but it also created a whole lot of anxiety. Out to everyone, it got there really quickly. That wasn't just, not just the oppression of having the Romans, but also this efficient system that was operating that they had never known of before that. Kind of like for the internet for us today. And the last thing in this period, there were lots and lots and lots of writings that we still have access to today. So one of the things when I was doing a course on archaeology, biblical archaeology, the professor was telling us in our class, he said, if you can imagine that we have a hundred fragments of a hundred different documents, you need to understand that there would have been 20 or 30 or 50 times more other things written that we never get to see or have not seen the light of day since because they've disappeared over time. So he was saying that, or even though we know of all these writings, that were religious in nature, Jewish writings and, you know, religious in nature during you know, Malachi and say the beginning of the gospels. We only have a handful of them today, but the handful we have is actually quite a lot. And a lot of it, believe it or not, had to do about end times. So you think we're obsessed about it today. They were obsessed with it, humanity is obsessed with end times. There's no way around it. This is just one little list Of all the books we know, that we actually have fragments on. One of them sounds like he's come out of Transformers. Metatron, right? All these books are talking about end times. And why was this happening? Because before then, there wasn't. You'd have Daniel, you'd have Isaiah, you'd have maybe the odd um, uh, rabbinic teachings around it. But all of a sudden, in this period of time, they're talking about end times. I mean, there's something going on in society at this moment that's driving them to be worried about the end is coming. We, we forget, because we so get caught up in our own world today that we think that we are in the end times. And you'll get all these books coming out about it, and, and it's almost arrogant for us to think that the end times are now. Let me tell you, Every generation, every era has thought it was the end times. Even beyond the 2,000 years that I'm talking about now. These guys absolutely convinced of it. And there's two reasons why. It's these two reasons. What actually sparked the Maccabean revolt was Antiochus IV wanting to convert all the Jews to the Greek pantheon of God's he went into Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he placed inside the Holy of Holies a big statue of Zeus now when you do that to rabid religious folk, you know what's going to happen right? Forget about vaccinations forget about any other thing you want, this made them all go really mad and there was no time for protest, they were going straight to war and that's what they did and they defeated him But the problem was, at this point, there were a lot of prophecies before Antiochus coming in, including some out of Daniel, that said to them that the end times will come when this person, this what we call today Antichrist, they had other names for it, would enter the Holy of Holies and desecrate it. So Antiochus IV did this and a lot of people thought even though they'd won the war even though they'd won they were thinking okay, now it's going to happen because that that happened in our temple. The problem was it didn't. And uh, fast forward a few years in the middle of their own civil war the Jews had a battle between each other between what we know as the Pharisees and Sadducees. Hycanus and his brother Antobulus, the two of them were fighting and they had factions. And one of them called the Romans in to help out because they were losing. But the Romans don't help out. The Romans like, sure, we'll help out and we'll take everything. So Pompey the Great comes down with, with the famous uh, third legion of the Roman uh, garrison, wipes out any resistance, walks into the temple, walks into the Holy of Holies and bam, right there in the middle, puts the Roman standards and walks right back out. What do you think they're going to be writing about again? You can almost sense, feel the anxiety of the Jews at this point. The stress. Is it any different from us today? I don't want to minimize what we're going through today. Actually, it is stressful. Yes, it is. Actually, anxiety levels are high. But we can't negate that this is the world that Jesus chose. This was the time Jesus chose to come into. He chose to come in at a time when these guys are freaking out and all these writings are going on. But this is the interesting part. About all of this. When Jesus comes in, they're waiting for this Messiah. They're waiting for this moment for someone to liberate them, to bring heaven on earth. They're waiting for these empires and these foreign nations to be thrown out. They're waiting for God's glory to come out and show the whole world how wrong they are. But Jesus begins his ministry with this, this, this verse Repent for the kingdom of God. Of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Rather than pointing his finger to the Romans and the Greek, he's pointing at us. He's pointing at the Jews. It's a totally like, what? Have you not been here the last few hundred years? Have you not seen what we've been going? You're looking at us. We need to change direction. We need to repent. What are you talking about, Jesus? And sometimes for us Christians, I think. You know, actually, Christmas is a time for us to remember not just why Jesus came for the world, but why he came for us. It's not to force it on the world. It's actually on us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's he's telling the Jews, I know all that stuff's going on around you, but actually, I need you to look inwardly in 19, I think it was 1912, the Daily Mail put out, I've shared this before, but I'll share it again. They put out this uh, uh, front page um, uh, uh, headline and and the whole world was brewing for war, right? You know, they knew something was going to happen. They were all on edge. There was a lot of anxiety again. (laughs) There was a lot going on in that first decade of of the 20th century. And, and the Daily Mail did this. They said, what's wrong with the world today? And, and G.K. Chesterton responded, I am. Actually, he said, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. He, uh, he was then invited by the Daily Mail um, to, to write a bit, like expand that. So he did an editorial on it. And he wrote this, in the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, should be, I am wrong. And until a man can give that answer, his idolism is only a hobby. Wow. Wow. And, and, and that's the very purpose of Christmas. God coming to earth. Sure, to bring salvation, hope, reconciliation. But we need to look at it ourselves first. We need to look at ourselves. In, this is um, a photo. Monica and I were just outside of um, Jerusalem. Our back, to our back was, um, is the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Over here on, on your right is the city of Bethlehem. And on your left... Is Herod's palace, the Herodium? Jesus had three points to choose where he would be born. He could have chosen the great city of Jerusalem with the temple and with all the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the teachers of the law, all the center of Judaism right there, or he could have gone across in the seat of power, but he chose a little village. I mean, the Herodian was huge. You can't you only see a little bit of it. But Herod had his own palace with underground fortifications. He had this whole little village built around him to protect him. And everyone in the region could see it. But Jesus chose a little town in Bethlehem. That needs to speak enormous amount to us today. He chose that over all of it because he wanted to speak to the people. He wasn't going to reach us with power, even though he has all the power, or with authority, even though he has all the authority. He went to the places where people would have least expected anyone who was coming to save the planet to be. This was a um, uh, uh, guy who writes for Forbes Leadership. Um, he's part of the Forbes company. He's part of the uh, Leadership Network. And he wrote this article uh, a few weeks ago. And he said this. He was like, I was reading. I was at a reading being given by the S.A.S. David Shields. And I was the one introducing him. And after the superlative intro, I sat down quite self-satisfied, thinking that if he was, at, he was the star, I was at least in the running for the best supporting role. And he launched, David, launched into a scathing indictment of George W. Bush and everyone in the audience was hooting and hollering in agreement. Not only were Shields and I better than everyone else, but everyone else was definitely better than Bush. And we all feel pretty good about ourselves in my mind. Then things took a turn. Every quality I despise in George Bush, he finally confided, is a quality I despise in myself. Adding for emphasis, he is my worst self realized. And not to single himself as uniquely bush like, he challenges all to look at the monster in the mirror. I thought that was powerful. That's kind of like G.K. Chesterton today. I'm troubled when I continue to hear the government's doing this, the government's doing this to us, that to us. We can't change that. Well, actually, we can in some ways. We can vote, but we've got to stop blaming other people. We need to look at ourselves. If the church is effective in its ministry, we change the world, not governments. If we're effective in our evangelism, in sharing the love of Christ, of living the love of Christ, we change the world. And we have this powerful, powerful God who gave up all his power to actually empower us in a ministry. G.K. Chesterton, continuing on in his talk, he says this, In his letter to to the Daily Mail, he said, the state has only a machinery of punishment. The church has a machinery of pardon. The state only frees society from the criminal, but the church can free the criminal from the crime. We have this powerful ministry that can change the world. It all begins on Christmas. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 to 21, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he was committed to us, the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors and though God were making his as though God were making his appeal through us we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God we have this ministry of reconciliation going on in Colossians chapter 1 for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile him to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross this notion of peace begins in the blood of jesus christ begins in this ministry of reconciliation begins with God living in us and sharing that with those around us. This is peace. Romans chapter five, verses one to two, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. christ is the embodiment of peace because once we are reconciled there can be no greater peace it's what makes you sleep at night anyone have a really massive fight with someone and then that moment where you've reconciled i don't know as a couple we can get into some fights But that moment when you lay in bed and you know it's all reconciled, it feels like everything's good with the world. Deep spiritual peace resides in Jesus Christ. And the world will only find that peace when it is reconciled to God. And we are the bearers of that. If you're struggling with peace, Isaiah says this, if you'd only paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well being like the waves of the sea. I'll, I'll paraphrase it a little bit for you. I've written it this way If you'd only made me the center and trusted me with your life, your peace would have been like a river, your well being like the waves of the sea. This is Christmas. Don't just think of the baby, don't fall into that bubble. Of just completely and absolutely cutting out what's real and what's not. Christmas is real. Last week we talked about hope. This week we talk about peace. Both worlds, the world of the first century and the world of the 21st century are the same. Both are struggling with with purpose and anxiety and stress and governments and leaders and wars and famine and pestilence and pandemics and all these things. But Jesus came to show, to bring and to reside peace in our lives. That's what Christmas is all about. Don't treat it like a bubble. Ask for it and claim it for your life. Amen? (laughs) Um, I'm used to closing the service right now, but I can actually call the worship team up, which I will do. Thank you. Come up, team. And as they come up, let's just bow our heads for a moment. Um, I I know this week has been difficult for a lot of you. I know the decisions that, that we've all had to wrestle with have been difficult for those of you going into work, having to pull out your phones or whatever, to, to to just be allowed to go in what was once upon a time something that didn't require anything. But there are also deeper issues in your life, maybe. Loved ones that are hurting physically, emotionally, your own worries about what tomorrow may bring. It's Christmas. We need to be reminded that the peace of God is upon us. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son. Thank you that we have a place to lay our burdens on. And it's in Jesus. That at this time of the year, which is, it is an exciting time, it is a time when we can look for some time off, We can look for maybe some presence. Uh, For some of us, actually, it's not such a good time. It's a time when we're remembering loved ones, missing loved ones, or loneliness, or, or even hurt and pain. Father God, fill us, Lord, with your peace. As your people, we're called to this ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling people to God. But Lord, help us to reconcile with you. That Before we point and look in the wrongs of others, help us to look at ourselves, at that monster in the mirror. At this time, Lord, we pray for your peace in our lives and in the life of our church and even more so in the life of our community, Lord. May this be a time of reconciliation and peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.